Tonight I'd like to speak about metta uh, in the context of the Brahma Viharas, which Kamala mentioned the other night. Metta is often taught in connection with three other practices. Together, the four are known as the Brahma Viharas. Brahma meaning celestial or supreme or one translation I heard of it, which I liked a lot, was the word best. Vihara meaning dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four qualities form our best home. And like any home, we may leave. It may not be the place we are all of the time. But like any home, we know what it feels like when we get back there. When we're not in any way pretending for the sake of anybody else, when we can feel that sense of ease and safety and rightness, the naturalness of being at home. So these four qualities together are considered our best home. The first is metta, or loving kindness. And when we do any one of these, in some way we are doing all of them if understood correctly. They all support one another. Metta is often done as the foundation practice, just like we're doing here. And rather than thinking of metta as a particular feeling or emotion, I think it's actually best understood as a faculty or a quality of awareness or wakefulness or attention. It's the way we pay attention. First of all, it means having a fullness of attention. I have a friend who once went, many years ago, when we were living in India, he went off to see this very great, eminent, renowned Tibetan Lama, the 16th Karmapa. The 16th Karmapa, according to my friend, who was so very well known, greeted my friend as though his arrival were just about the most important thing that had ever happened to the Karmapa in his life. And he said that he did that not through great pomp and circumstance or grandiose flourishes. He did that by paying absolute, complete attention to him. So that my friend said the subjective experience of that was one of being completely loved. And as soon as he told me that story, I thought, how unfortunate, you know, are all those encounters that I have where I'm kind of listening to the person who's speaking, I'm kind of getting ready to make a phone call I need to make or um, do an errand that needs to be done. And I realized, you know, it wouldn't take all that much to gather my energy and really be there. And that wholeheartedness of presence, of attention, really is like a gift of love. I see metta also as a factor of attention or an aspect of attention because it flourishes through paying attention. Tomorrow, the instruction will move to what is really my favorite part of this practice, which is the offering of metta to a neutral person. 
A neutral person is someone we don't strongly like or dislike. We feel kind of neutral toward them. And what's so interesting to me about that practice is that, first of all, even even the challenge in the beginning to find a neutral person can be very interesting. Sometimes we find we don't have very many neutral people in our lives. As soon as we meet somebody or even hear they exist, we have a judgment about them. Now, we like them or we don't like them. But more commonly, we have quite a number of neutral people in our lives. For all we take the time to recognize that this person is a living, breathing human being who wants to be happy just like we do, they might as well be a piece of furniture. They really are like an object to us. And so we look right through people. We look right around them or by them. And we don't actually pay attention. So the neutral person is chosen because we don't feel anything much for them. What's so remarkable over time is that that sense of connection grows. Not because they've done us an enormous favor and we feel indebted somehow to wish them well. Not because they are very challenging to us and we feel, you know, I'm never going to be free until I can work this one out. It's just because we're not ignoring them anymore. My favorite story about that, which some of you have heard me tell, has to do with the Metta retreat I teach here every winter, uh, which a friend of mine sat some years ago. And then I didn't see her again for many months until I was teaching another Metta retreat in, in New Mexico. And she came up to me in New Mexico in the beginning, all kind of beaming and shiny, and she said to me, I've fallen in love with my dry cleaner. <laughs> and I said, that's fantastic. You know, congratulations. And she said, no, no, not romantically, but he was my neutral person back in that retreat. I did in Barry. And every day when I meditate, I hold him in my heart and I wish him well. And she said, now I go into the store and I really want to see how he's doing. You know, I look, how are things? So this was, I don't know how many, eight, nine years ago, something like that. And then... Um, just a couple of years ago, somebody asked me to write an article on Meta on Loving Kindness for a magazine. I was writing it, and I happened to run into her. I hadn't seen her in a long time. I happened to run into her, and I asked her permission to use her name and tell the story. And she said, oh, yeah, that's fine. And then she said, you know, I still go into the store, and I still really look. How's he doing? You know, he means something to her. And that's what I've seen. It's why I'm I'm so intrigued by that aspect of the practice, why I like it so much. Um, Because it's so clearly a lesson in what awareness does. When we actually become aware, we will connect. And it's, it's very profound. Often we suggest that you choose somebody on the retreat as your neutral person, if in fact, you still feel neutral toward anybody on the retreat. (laughs) Because you will tend to run into this person now and then, just in the course of the retreat, and it's quite interesting. It takes a while, you know, so the, the full effect of it may not be apparent in a retreat this length, but certainly in longer retreats, something happens. And it also points to 
the fact, you know, as I, as I keep saying, it isn't necessarily like a great breakthrough feeling that happens while we're sitting, but there is that link that happens, that sense of being connected. Very often in like the long retreat we teach every year in, um, in the fall, three-month course, people will have a neutral object that's one of the meditators, and they'll say over and over and over again in interviews, I don't feel anything. It's not working. I don't feel anything. And then one day I'll get a note which will say, you know, my neutral person didn't show up at breakfast. Could you please go check on them and make sure they're okay? <laughs> and I think, you're right. That's what that person wants me to do is like come into their room and, you know, wake them up or something. But it's that feeling, you know? We wish them well. We want them to be okay. We put energy into that. It's not just a passing thought. It reminds me of, I had a friend who was a um, reportedly quite wonderful uh, therapist somewhere. And she told me this story about this time when a man came to see her asking to be her client. And she actually didn't like him much. So she said no. She didn't like elements of his behavior. She didn't like his political views. and um, She said no, but he really, really wanted to see her. And finally she said yes. She said the most interesting thing happened because now I was necessarily his ally. We were on the same team. His behavior was still very difficult, but I saw it more as suffering than as bad, which I'll also get into more in a few minutes. I wanted to help him work it out so he wouldn't be in so much pain. He wouldn't be causing pain to other people. She said, suddenly, he was mine. He was one of mine. And when she told me that story, I thought of the um, Buddhist term, the bodhisattva, a being who has a commitment toward liberation for the sake of all beings and wants to liberate their own mind for the sake of all beings. And I thought, what an incredible job description. What if everybody was ours? You know, no one left out. That actually is the perspective of metta. And that's also a way it's a faculty of attention. It's being able to see more deeply into things, into situations, to know the the connections that really bind all of us, whether we like somebody or not, or we approve of their behavior or not, or we're going to try to stop their behavior or not, still, we are all connected. Sometimes I think, how many of us are actually sitting here in this room right now? They're all of us, and what if we added all the people who influenced us to be here in some way? all the people who gave us a book or read us a poem or told us about their meditation experience. And what if they were here too? And all the people who've hurt us, like really hurt us, so that we were almost forced to look for a deeper meaning of happiness, a deeper sense of happiness. What if they were here too? And the people who grew the food that we ate today and made the clothing that we're wearing and built this building and you know, what if they were here too? And in fact, in some way they are. No one of us is here all alone. 
We're all born here by the influences, the relationships, the connections, the conditions. It's like this confluence of all of these elements coming together. That's what creates this moment. That's what creates us sitting in this room. And we need to, in many ways, learn to honor that, to open to that, to see the vastness of those qualities of connection and interconnection, because that is actually the truth of life. We need it for ourselves to understand no matter how alone we feel, we are never actually alone or cut off or isolated. And we need to understand it for the sake of the world because all of our actions will have consequences as they ripple out into this vast stream of interconnection. And a true worldview needs to needs to recognize that for change, stable change, real change, radical change, to actually take place, to make this a better world. We need to know that. We need to, to recognize that. My friend Bob Thurman, um, whom some of you I'm sure know, um, has this example that I use a lot. It's very New York and very Bob, actually. He said, imagine you're in a subway with a whole bunch of other people in the subway car, and these Martians come and they zap the subway car so that you're going to be together forever. <laughs> he said, what do you do? You know, if somebody's hungry, you try to feed them. If somebody's freaked out, you try to comfort them because you're going to be together forever. And guess what? <laughs> it's true. This is actually the nature of things that together we form this fabric of life. And we need to be responsive to that. First, we need to see that, to recognize it. <coughs> and then we need to act in a way that, that honors that. <coughs> I was teaching with um, a friend of mine named Krishnadas, whom some of you know, um, once in L.A., um, <coughs> and he uh, was doing the Hindu devotional chanting, and I was teaching meditation. We had a, a lovely, extraordinary day, at the end of which he looked out at this group of people and he said, you know, we should all live together. <coughs> and then he said, I guess we do, because we do. We share this planet, we share this life, the vision of metta is that which, which knows that. That's why I keep saying it's not necessarily a feeling or an emotion. It's that knowing. It's that quality of connection. So that's the first of the Brahma-viharas. Second is the state of compassion, which is known as the, the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering. It's an actual movement of the heart which is why Zen master um, Thich Nhat Hanh said, compassion is a verb, it's an action, it's that movement of the heart. Each of these qualities, each of the Brahma-viharas, has states which are the clear opposite of them, which is known as the far enemy you would never really confuse 
the far enemy and the actual Brahma Vihara, so that the um, far enemy of metta is is anger or fear, which are the same state. That recoiling or cutting off from somebody or a situation. But the near enemy is another quality that's close enough to the actual Brahma Vihara so that we can get confused. One can masquerade as the other so that the near enemy of metta is attachment. It's close, but it's not really the same. Compassion, I think, is very interesting because of its near enemy. The far enemy of compassion is a state of cruelty where we actually want suffering to increase or, or grow. The near enemy is, it's sometimes translated as pity, sometimes it's translated as grief. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean grief in the normal way or the psychological way we use the term here. It means being absolutely overcome by suffering. It means being broken by the suffering that we see so that, in fact, we don't have any energy to try to help, to make a difference. Um, Once uh, Joseph and I had gone to what was then the Soviet Union to teach, um, surreptitiously, we went. It was illegal to teach meditation. We went as part of a tour group. In fact, just as I was leaving, I was standing in front of the building, like right where the bulletin board is, and somebody came up to me and said, you better be really careful because I had a friend who went to Cuba to teach, and he got arrested, and he's in jail. And I thought, thank you (laughs) for that blessing. (laughs) Um, So we joined this tour group, and we never went and saw anything much, and we just went around to different people's living rooms to teach with a translator, and... I was speaking a lot about compassion, and every time I used the word, I just felt this really funny energy in the room. So one day I sat down with the translator and I said, when I say compassion, what do you say? (laughs) And he described this very kind of florid state where he said, it's like you're completely shattered and broken by the suffering that you see. And He said, it's like someone has taken a giant stake and driven it through your heart. And and I thought, well, no wonder. You know, I'm getting this really funny feeling in the room. But, you know, it's not all that far off from how we sometimes view compassion. And yet, if we really were overcome, what could we do to try to help or even to share in solidarity to be present with someone else's suffering. It would be pretty hard. I think sometimes uh, my great model of compassion is the Dalai Lama. And I think about his last visit to New York City, which was about three years ago. Um, Well, he's coming again in September. And um, a good friend of mine organized the visit. And he gave, I think, three or four days of teachings um, (coughs) in this theater. And then he gave a public talk in Central Park. Some of you were probably there. And my friend's really big aspiration was to have many, many people come to Central Park. It was free. It was open to the public. There's no registration. So there was no knowing how many people would come. And the day before, it poured rain. 
it just rained and rained, and, and she was really desolate. But that morning, it was clear. I woke up, I went to the park, and I couldn't see anything for a while, but I could hear the sound of Tibetan monks chanting in the distance, so I followed the sound. And then at one point, I turned a corner, and there was just this ocean of people. It's like everywhere the eye could land, there were people. The estimate of the um, State Department, which provides security for the Dalai Lama, was at 250,000 people, and that's what it looked like. It was just this ocean of people. We sat in a rare kind of silence for that many people. And finally, when the Dalai Lama began speaking, he began with something I found quite startling. He said, you know, from a certain point of view, I haven't had such an easy life. He said, I had to assume power when I was 16, temporal power. I had to flee into exile in my early 20s. I've had to daily try to keep this culture in exile intact. I've had to daily hear reports of the kinds of atrocities happening inside of Tibet. He said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And then he said, but I'm pretty happy. <laughs> Which is, of course, what one sees in him, you know, is that he's pretty happy. And then he said, the reason that I'm pretty happy, even though it hasn't been such an easy life, is because of compassion. He said, because of compassion, I feel at one with others. I feel this connection to others. I feel like no one is alone in their suffering. And it's really remarkable, because I bet of the 250,000 or so people sitting there, plenty of us could have said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And not so very many could have said, but I'm pretty happy. It's obviously a, an unusual kind of happiness. It's not like being happy-go-lucky, you know, or pretending everything is just fine and suffering doesn't exist and, you know, don't look that way, but, you know, it's nothing at all like that. It's the kind of happiness, because of compassion, that can take in the suffering. But also, it's almost like the joy of the oneness, so that the, the bitterness and the the really brutal isolation that so many people feel doesn't have to be there. We don't have to reject the side of someone else's suffering because we're afraid it's going to undermine our own happiness. We understand that we can be present even when we can't make it better, even when we can't make it all go away. So that's compassion. It's the trembling or the quivering of the heart that allows us to see suffering, to open to it, whether our own or someone else's, without being devastated by it. To see that life is as it is, that there's change, there's movement, there's loss, there's renewal. To have wisdom be the underpinning of that compassion. So it doesn't become a question of our own ego and what, what we can do, but a question of that kind of joining together. The Dalai Lama said something like, I've never met anybody that I really consider a stranger 
And you can kind of see that in him too. You know, you don't get the sense that he's saying, huh, you know, like, maybe, you know. <laughs> like, take two steps back, please. You know, mentally, the way we all do. Like, you know, I'll put you over here and you over there, and, you know. And, um, and that, that's really the, the possibility of a heart of compassion. The third Brahma-vihara is the state of sympathetic joy, which means taking delight or having happiness in the happiness of others. If compassion lets us open to suffering, then sympathetic joy lets us open to joy. We actually pay attention to happiness, our own and, and others. Some people say that of the four which are loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and, and then equanimity, sympathetic joy can, can be the most difficult. If we really learn how to pay attention, metta will come. Most of us are not really cruel people. If we can learn, first of all, to see certain things as suffering rather than bad and wrong and terrible, but as states of suffering, like our own fear, for example, or someone else's. And we learn really what compassion is, not that devastation, you know, but, but compassion, it will be there, it will sustain us. But to actually be happy for the happiness of others takes some doing. <laughs> it's not impossible by any means. It's certainly a possibility. But it's such a shift away from our normal state, which is you know, to see someone else's happiness and to think, ooh, <laughs> you know, I would be happier if you could just lose a little of that. <laughs> you, know? you don't have to lose everything, but you know, if the light could just dim a bit, I would really enjoy that. <laughs> and again, it's not that it's impossible to, to either experience naturally, because some people seem to have it naturally, or to cultivate. We absolutely can cultivate it. But it takes, it takes a strong willingness to. Because mostly, you know, it's so easy to think that happiness is a limited commodity in this world, and the more someone else has, the less there's going to be for us. And so we feel threatened. You know, we feel we're really not going to get our share if someone else is happy. But really, what does it have to do with us? How can it possibly take away from our own happiness? And here again, the, the Dalai Lama, I think, was very insightful when he said, it only makes sense to cultivate happiness in the happiness of others because then you increase your chances of happiness six billion to one. <laughs> and he said, those are very good odds. And I think about that sometimes. You know, you can stay at home, minding your own business. You think of somebody being happy, and you're happy. You don't have to spend any money. You don't have to, you know, go do anything, you know. There it is. You're just happy. And, of course, I think we all know the, the tremendous beauty of that quality because we know what it's like to receive it or not. You know, when something really good happens for you and some people are just so happy for you and how, what a beautiful feeling that is and how much it increases and enhances your own sense of delight, and how some people, and they may act like they're happy, you know, but you know, they're not so happy that things are going so well for you. And, you know, and that doesn't feel very good. 
So it's a beautiful quality to really take delight in the happiness of others, and it's very freeing. It frees us from that sense of envy, from jealousy, from feeling bereft, like we don't have enough. It frees us from being attached to judgments. You know, we don't really try to cultivate sympathetic joy if someone is really creating a lot of misery, but they're happy, they seem to be happy. It's not that. But what if somebody really is genuinely happy and they're not hurting anybody, but they're not living in the way we think they should be living? And I told the, um, one of the groups I saw today about this time when um, a friend came to me for some advice. He said he wanted to take his father to India to meet this particular teacher or guru. And he asked me what I thought. And I said, I think that's a terrible idea. You know, it's going to be really hot in India, and he's going to get sick, very likely, and the food's going to be really difficult, and and the scene around the teacher is going to be frightening, and, you know, I think he'll have a horrible time. So this person didn't listen to me at all and brought his father to India. His father absolutely loved it. He was extremely happy there. He became a disciple of the teacher. (laughs) And then he became a teacher in the teacher's lineage to carry the message out further. So that was obviously a bad piece of advice. Um, And when they came back and I saw where things had gone, of course there was a moment, you know. (laughs) Can I actually be happy for this person's happiness or am I going to feel aggrieved by being wrong, having been wrong? Am I going to hold on to that opinion? Or can I just let go and say, you know what? I'm really happy you're happy. Look at that. So it's a really, it's a very liberating practice to actually cultivate it. It is almost like all of them are practices of generosity, but you can see it so strikingly here. You know, the heart which is closed and frightened and Um, shut down, can't share, can't give. And then that moment of of giving, it's really, um, it's a practice all in itself. I say that when the Buddha taught lay people, he always began with a teaching about generosity because we all can give something. It doesn't have to be material. You know, it can be a smile. It can be that quality of attention, to pay attention to somebody. We all have the capacity to give something, and that is a source of incredible joy. When we practice giving, like offering sympathetic joy, or metta, or compassion, what it does is it it guides us right back to a sense of inner abundance. We only give, really, when we feel we have something to give. And that's one of the great challenges in all of these practices, is remembering that. I've certainly had the experience, and I'm sure uh, many of you have too, of um, encountering people who don't have very much materially, but they have that inner sense that they can give, that they have something to offer, and so they're very generous. It's like that, for example, in Burma, where in many retreat centers and monasteries, you don't pay anything. You don't pay room and board even. 
to be there because everything you eat, everything you need is given to you by people who are some of the poorest people in the world, actually. And in many Burmese monasteries, there's a waiting list of like a year um, to be able to go offer food to the meditators because it's such an honored activity to meditate. And that's how you celebrate something. On your birthday, you don't get gifts, you give gifts. And so a very uh, popular thing to do is to go off to the monastery and, and feed people, to offer the food. And you know, to, to be there and with such poor people, giving you just the best of what they can offer. And then sometimes, and then to come back here, you know, where there'd be so much materially, relatively speaking, but not that same feeling inside, you know, that people can, can offer and can share. And, and you can see why it needs to be a practice, because we get so frightened. You know, I'm not going to have enough. You know, what if they get happy? Um, you know, and so we have to do the practice in order to be freed of, of all of those strictures of habit. And then the last Brahma Vihara is that of equanimity. And in some ways, it's the underpinning of all the other three because it's equanimity that allows the generosity of the other three to be unstinting, to be something other than an exchange. It's said that equanimity, which means balance of mind, um, endows metta with patience. Because otherwise, it's very easy for metta to slip into its near enemy, which is that kind of attachment. Like, okay, you know, be happy already. Or as I, you know, I told a group today also, you know, many times I will have taught a metta retreat and that I'll run into somebody, say, in New York City, and they'll say to me, you know, I was on that metta retreat, and, and I was really upset because I, you know, I had this friend, and I sent them metta all week, and then I got home, and I saw them, and they weren't any better, you know? And, and all I could think was, you know, I gave you a week. Like, why aren't you better? And so it's equanimity which actually allows the other three not to slip into their near enemies. And so it's said that it endows metta with patience. So it is like a pure gift, not knowing when or how, if it will bear fruit. But that, in a way, is not our job. It endows compassion with courage, because without a mighty dose of courage, it's not easy to open to suffering and not be overcome by it, not to be really shattered by it. It's equanimity, which is balance of mind that brings wisdom into that situation, which says life is as it is. And it's said that equanimity allows sympathetic joy to grow beyond the probably relatively narrow range of people that we feel comfortable being happy for their happiness. It actually helps it expand and, and move beyond that to recognize that life is constantly changing. It's moving. It's ups and downs and pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. That's how it is. But there's no one who experiences only pleasure and no pain.
There is no one who experiences only praise and no blame. Life just isn't like that. So when we look at this person who's happy, do we really want them to lose that? In most instances, not. You know, we really don't. And to the degree that we do, it's kind of transparent. You know, it's, it's almost amusing. I was in uh, Malibu one season, and um, it happened to be a, a time of incredible torrential rains. Just poured and poured and poured, and I have a friend who's garage started leaking and then she had this plague of ants coming through because of the rain and she had a friend who was a television producer who called her and said she'd like to bring a a camera crew in to film her travails and for a national news show and and my friend was really puzzled and she said why you know like and and the woman said all around the country people get happy when something goes wrong in Malibu you know (laughs) You know, so when you see that in your own mind, like, oh, good, her roof's leaking, you know, it is kind of transparent. It's not, where, it's not what you call home, let's put it that way. It's something you can see and laugh at, for, you know, see it for what it is. Be amused and let it go. Equanimity, I often think of as the voice of wisdom. It's the articulation of wisdom to see things as they are. The Buddha said that life is made up of those eight vicissitudes of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. That's just how it is. Everyone's life. And I always I think about all those instances, those actions we take or those things we do that bring forth praise from some people and blame from others. It's like when I talked about the bowing, you know, the first morning here. I thought about the first time anybody ever did that here. Somebody, one of the teachers had gone uh, to Asia recently, to Thailand, and he came back, and because it was something that moved him personally, when he came into the hall, he bowed to the Buddha statue. Then he sat down. He led the sitting. He rang the bell. And by the time he got up at the end and got to the bulletin board, there were notes waiting for him. And you know how far away that is? It's like, you know, 30 seconds maybe? So these notes waiting for him on the board. And he pulled the first one down and it said, when I saw you bowing to the Buddha, I was really happy because I have a very strong devotional element in my life, and I was so glad that it could find expression in a place like this. Then he pulled down the next note, which said, when I saw you bowing to the Buddha, I was really appalled, because, you know, that might be fine in Asia, where it's in a different context, but it really doesn't belong here, and I wish you wouldn't do that again. You know, 30 seconds. (laughs) And there's praise from some and blame from others. It's the nature of things. You know, and that equanimity, the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. You know, equanimity is not indifference, but it's easy to confuse the two. And since everyone, no doubt, is going to ask, what's the near enemy of sympathetic joy? (laughs) Um, Which I didn't mention. Some texts describe it as 
kind of giddiness, just being happy, not in reference to someone else's happiness. And other people describe it as comparing, you know, uh, looking at someone's state not to be happy for it, for them, but just that kind of incessant nagging comparing <laughs> that, that we can do. But the, the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. They're not the same. Sometimes in mindfulness practices, well, this is the fear people have that if they're really mindful and they really get balanced, they really become equanimous, everything is just going to morph into this gray blob and they're not going to feel anything. There's going to be no ups and downs. There's going to be no intensity. Uh, Everything will be kind of subdued. And yet life isn't like that, ever. There are times when things are glorious and wonderful and times when they're very painful. And a lot of times when they're just kind of ordinary, you know, just that place in between where we tend to go to sleep. what we have the opportunity of doing is really waking up and being present to all of the pleasure without grasping, which is an extra thing. And with all the unpleasant times, without shame and and anger, which is also an extra thing. And then for all the neutral times to actually connect fully, to be really present, even though something is not hitting us over the head by being pleasant or unpleasant. That's the invitation or the promise of mindfulness. It's not that things won't go up and down anymore, because as long as you're alive, that's the nature of things. That's how things are. And so we take that balance. It's not resignation you know, or apathy, it's wisdom. We take that balance into our endeavors, into our trying to help to make a difference. We have more patience. We have more courage. We have more openness in how we we actually perceive the world. We need the equanimity for generosity to really be generosity. We need the equanimity to be able to sustain a loving heart. I was recently um, at an interfaith conference, and uh, Father Thomas Keating was speaking, who um, is this wonderful Trappist monk who used to be kind of our neighbor here in Barry. Um, and when he spoke, he, he was talking about the need for a spiritual life, and he said, one has to have a spiritual life to know how to fail. Otherwise, you just don't know how to fail. Which means you need some perspective, you need some sense of equanimity to realize you may not get what you want when you want it for yourself or for somebody else, but you can keep going. You can start again. You can have wholeheartedness. You don't have to be confused by the winds of change. You can have a bigger view. Those are all the the gifts of having some kind of balance of mind. So together, 
loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity form our best home. And as I said, they all support one another. When we practice metta, we are really bringing in all of those other influences. Otherwise, it would be, as one person once said to me, metta with an edge, you know, get happy. <laughs> we are having the, that wisdom, that balance. We're just planting the seed. We're letting go. We're having the compassion for the suffering that we see in ourselves and others and aren't undone by feeling helpless. And we have the joy. We actually can see the joy as well as the pain and learn not to be afraid of taking delight in the happiness that people have. It's like faith that there is enough. You know, there's enough happiness to go around. So this is our practice. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.